Well, last weekend I had the privilege of ministering um, at one of my friend's church in North Carolina. Uh, Carrie Hardy was our man camp speaker last uh, fall, and uh, he liked the idea so much that he said, I'm ripping it off, Ken. We're going we're, we're to have a man camp in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And so he did that uh, and invited me to come to be the inaugural speaker, and that was really fun to meet up with his men. And uh, I did a series uh, called Don't Be That Guy. And uh, that's kind of a euphemism we use in our culture. Don't, don't be that guy, right? Uh, there's certain characteristics or things that as men we know, we don't want to be that guy. Um, we want to avoid being that guy. And so we looked at some of the Old Testament characters, some men that we don't want to be like, um, like Samson, uh, don't be that guy. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, don't be that guy. Um, and then we looked at another more obscure character, uh, named Asaph in Psalm 73. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me to turn, turn to Psalm 73, a, a passage that we've gone over before uh, in the past here at Lakeside Bible Church. But uh, as I was um, preaching it this past weekend, again, every time I preach this, this psalm, not only is the message refined in my mind, um, I see new things that I've never seen before, and hopefully I can explain it in uh, a clearer, uh, more practical way than I have in the past. And and, and more importantly, not only is the message refined, uh, the more I preach it, the the more my soul is refined. And I just feel like this psalm in particular is one that God has used to refine my own soul uh, as I have wrestled with sin and temptation and and, uh, striving to find my joy and contentment in God and God alone. This this is the psalm that God always brings me back to, and I trust it will be an encouragement for us this morning as we consider um, Asaph and uh, his struggle that he describes here in Psalm 73. Let me read the text as we begin this morning. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them, their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high, they have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they've increased in wealth. Surely, in vain, I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said... I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand, with your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Father, we confess that we are that guy. We are that person. We are so much like Asaph. We can relate to his struggle. 
We've all at one point got our eyes off of you and onto the world or those around us and we've lost sight of your goodness and we begin to question whether or not it pays to pursue Christ. And so I pray as we consider this profound psalm that, Lord, even though I've been over it many times before in my own heart and I know every time I reread it and contemplate it, it's, I see something new and fresh and compelling and I pray that that would be our experience this morning, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. One of the most foundational books that I've ever read is J.I. Packer's classic work, Knowing God. And it's been said that books don't change your life, sentences do. And there's a profound sentence in Knowing God that I think perfectly summarizes what Asaph was describing here in Psalm 73. Packer writes this, quote, every Christian is susceptible to occasional spells of derangement when the powers of temptation press their minds out of shape, and these, by God's mercy, do not last. Let me read that again. Every Christian is susceptible to occasional spells of derangement when the powers of temptation press their minds out of shape, and these, by God's mercy, do not last. That's exactly what this psalm is about. Now, generally speaking, the psalms fall into several different categories. There's psalms of praise, there's penitential psalms, like the one we read earlier, Psalm 51. There's imprecatory psalms that you pray against your neighbor, right, that you don't like. No, this is, uh, you pray these imprecatory psalms against your enemies, um, at least David did. There's messianic psalms, uh, talking about the coming of the Messiah. And then there's psalms of lament or complaint. And I think it's this last category of psalms, the psalms of lament and complaint, that are really our favorites to turn to whenever we're facing some difficult, depressing, uh, debilitating situation in our lives. Why? Because the writers dare to be honest about what they're thinking and feeling. And you read it and you go, well, I may have never said that, but I sure thought that. And so here in Psalm 73, Asaph was honestly confessing a spell of derangement that he experienced when the powers of temptation had pressed his mind out of shape and, and then how God mercifully brought him back to his senses. And few temptations are more powerful in pressing our minds out of shape and, and triggering one of these spells of derangement, as Packer describes it, and, and causes us to become spiritually disoriented and disillusioned than the temptation to envy the wicked. And in both the Psalms and the Proverbs, we're admonished to not envy the wicked. Listen just to a few references here. Psalm 37, verse 1. Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. And then in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 31. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. Uh, Proverbs chapter 23, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. And then Proverbs 24, verse 1. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. And then that same chapter, Proverbs 24, verse 19. Do not fret because of evildoers, or be envious of the wicked. And so we're told multiple times, don't envy the wicked. And so we should ask ourselves, well, what does that mean to envy the wicked? Well, first of all, envy is a feeling of discontent or ill will because of someone else's looks, talents, possessions, opportunities, or accomplishments. It's, it's wishing you could have what they have or wishing you could enjoy what they enjoy. That's what it means to envy. Now, who are the wicked? The wicked are those who don't have a relationship with God. They don't love God. They don't obey God. Uh, we could describe them as ungodly people. 
And so to envy the wicked means that we feel a sense of discontent or ill will when you consider what ungodly people have and what ungodly people do. It's wishing that you could have what they have and wishing you could do what they do. And God says we shouldn't do that. (laughs) It's one of the stupidest sins that we could ever commit. And yet it's a sin that we're all susceptible, aren't we? I'll be the first to confess to you this morning, there are moments in my life when I stupidly and sinfully envy the wicked. I hate to have to admit it to you, but it's true that that within my heart there lies a a secret fascination with the lives of ungodly people. There's something intriguing to me about the, the carefree lifestyles of the rich and famous. And the way I know that is because I find myself often drawn to articles in the newspaper or in a magazine or on the internet that shows uh, the, the glamour or just really kind of glamorizes the, the ungodly lives of famous athletes and movie stars and musicians and how much they spend on their house or what kind of car that they drive or who they're dating or who they're divorcing or, or, or along with all their other immoral escapades. And frankly, at times, it makes me wonder what it would be like to be them. What it would be like to be them. There's a certain sinful appeal to me about being able to to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want. And there have been even a few fleeting moments in my life when I felt like just punning my faith and going for it. You say, you're a pastor. You're not supposed to think like that. Well, can I be honest with you this morning? I've been a Christian for most of my life, and I am truly grateful that God graciously saved me at a young age, and He kept me from having to experience a lot of the sinful things that that so many people typically have to deal with in life. And from my youth, I've strived to, to live a pure and holy life that's pleasing to the Lord. And as one who's been called by God to, to be a pastor, I've, I've sought to remain above reproach in everything that I say and everything that I do. And like the Apostle Paul, I've continually find myself having to buffet my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself would not be disqualified. But the ministry, as you can imagine, can be tough at times. There's There's a never-ending list of things to do. There's numerous burdens that you alone carry, and there's lots of early mornings, lots of late nights. There's many days when nothing seems to go right. In fact, you don't feel like you got anything accomplished at all. And it's easy to get tired and discouraged and frustrated and embittered, and, and that's usually when the world starts to look really good. And I'm tempted to compare myself to ungodly people who are out there fulfilling every fleshly desire that they have and they're thoroughly enjoying themselves in the process. And I say to myself, well, wait a minute. This is not how it's supposed to work. Here I am faithfully serving the Lord and I'm facing all these challenges and struggles and these guys are out there living it up and and they don't seem to have a care in the world. And at that point, I find myself having a personal pity party and questioning whether or not it really pays to stay true to God. And I begin to wonder, am I missing out on something? Am I, have I been ripped off here? I mean, is this really worth it all? Have I been keeping myself pure for nothing? And when I lose perspective like this, I'm the most susceptible to slipping or stumbling spiritually. Well, before you guys run me out of the pulpit here and start searching for a new pastor, please understand that I'm not alone in my struggle. Because Asaph struggled with the same sort of thing, and he openly shared his great soul struggle here in Psalm 73. You may be wondering, well, who is this Asaph guy anyway? Well, Asaph was a a Levite who David had appointed as the chief worship leader of Israel. 
He led the tabernacle choir by playing loud-sounding cymbals, and he also wrote divinely inspired music to, 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 to lead the, the nation of Israel in song. Psalm 50 and Psalm 73, all the way through Psalm 83, are, are all attributed to Asaph. I think it's important to note that Asaph was a godly man who had most likely been raised in a godly home. He was a mature saint with a rich spiritual heritage. He was in a position of spiritual leadership. And yet he struggled with sin just like everyone else. And he was refreshingly open and honest about it here in the song. And so what he's doing here in Psalm 73 is he, he, he shared how he secretly struggled with the goodness of God in light of the prosperity of the wicked, in order to show us how stupid it is to envy them since we have something infinitely greater than they do. And his transparent testimony provides profound help and hope to all of us who are tempted at times to envy the wicked. Notice how he begins in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so Asaph started off here by affirming the one basic truth that he had always been absolutely convinced of and that had been reaffirmed in his mind as a result of this intense internal struggle that he describes here in Psalm 73. Notice how he ends in verse 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And so the goodness of God was the first and final conviction of his heart. It was the truth that he learned to live and die by even when things seemed to indicate otherwise. Warren Wiersbe has said it well. He said this, quote, When pondering the mysteries of life, hold on to what you know for sure and never doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. Never doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light. The light. So no matter what happens in our lives, we must never, ever question the goodness of God. Well, that's relatively easy, right, when life's going good. Hey, God's good. Amen. God's good. But it's a whole lot harder when things aren't going so good. When you realize that you, um, instead of getting a Refund, we refund, refund from your taxes, right? You actually owe. And you don't just owe a little, you owe a lot. Well, is God still good? All the time. All the time, God is good. Kelly and I will remind one another of that, particularly when life's not going so good. It's easy to say God is good when you get that big tax return you weren't expecting, right? Hey, God is good. But when your minivan breaks down with three small kids in the Mojave Desert, is God still good? All the time. Even here in the Mojave Desert, God's good. And we have to remind each other of that because you forget that. You question that. And so it's as if Asaph was saying here, hey, let's just get one thing straight before I spill the beans here and kind of let you inside, give you a sneak peek into my sanctification process. Okay, let's just get one thing straight. I know for a fact that God is good, particularly those who are pure in heart, he says, those who are wholeheartedly committed to him, those who have an unmixed devotion to him. This is a a rock-solid truth that has always provided stable footing for my life. I've always believed this, but at one point in my life, I questioned it, and I almost slipped off this firm foundation. And in the verses to follow here, Asaph made himself vulnerable, and he gave us a sneak peek into God's sanctifying work in his life. And you can divide this psalm into two phases, if you will, two phases. First of all, we see Asaph's envious descent. Asaph's envious descent in verses 2 through 16, where we see him focusing on the wicked, which caused him to spiral down away from the goodness of God into doubt and utter despair. And then the second phase or stage in this sanctification process that he describes here is his glorious ascent. 
his glorious ascent in verses 17 through 28, we see him focusing back on God, which caused him to regain a proper perspective and return to the glorious truth that he'd always believed and once again experienced the unparalleled contentment and satisfaction in God. Let's look at, first of all, Asaph's envious descent. Asaph's envious descent. Verse 2, he says, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's like, hey, I know God is good, but I have to admit there was a time when I actually began to wonder. My faith in God's goodness became wobbly when I started to compare my life with that of the wicked, and they seem much better off than me. And this just didn't square with Asaph's theology, because he'd been raised to believe that God blesses those who obey, and he curses those who disobey. And so in his mind, that meant that the plans of the wicked should flounder, and those of the godly should prosper, and yet he was witnessing the exact opposite. He saw evil people prospering while he was suffering. And his heart was filled with envy and resentment that was ultimately directed towards God. And he began to question the the goodness and the fairness of God. And basically he was saying, God, this isn't fair. Here I am maintaining my integrity and seeking to honor and obey you in everything I say and everything I do. And this other dude, he's just totally disobeying you, lying and cheating and stealing. and, And he's way better off than me. God, I don't get it. And James Montgomery Boyce makes an insightful comment here. He says, quote, The real problem is that God is not treating us the way we think he should. (laughs) That other people seem to be doing better than we are, that we have to struggle for a living while they just coast along without any obvious trouble. He said, our problem is envy, and envy is criticizing God. It is sin. Notice how he goes on to describe the arrogant, wicked people that he was envious of. Verse 4, For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. They die a painless death. Their bodies are sleek and healthy. They have lots of money and plenty of food and clothes. They, they can afford the best of everything, and they seem to just cruise through life without ever having to face the troubles that everyone else has to face. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them, Uh, their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. They're arrogant, they're self-confident, they strut around like a proud peacock, their sinful imaginations run wild with endless ways to satisfy their lusts and their pleasures, and they freely do whatever they want, whenever they want, with whoever they want. Verse 8, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. In other words, they're constantly boasting about all that they own, all that they do. They're just always running at the mouth. They exalt themselves. They put everyone else down. They even go as far as to blaspheme God. Look at verse 10, therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? I think what Asaph was saying there is that that people are so enamored by their success that they drink in everything that they say. And they act as if God is not omniscient. He doesn't know what happens here on earth. And so they they feel safe in pursuing their life of sin. And and they get away with it and they boast about it. And then you have a summary statement here in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wealth. There they have. there There you have it. There's the wicked. They have it made in the shade. They're living in the lap of luxury, and they're getting richer all the time.
Notice what he says next, verse 13. Surely, surely, in light of the prosperity of the wicked, surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in this innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Asaph had concluded that striving to live a pure and holy life was a big waste of time and energy. What's the point of living a godly life anyway? What good has it done me to spend all those hours in the Word and in prayer? What have I gained from all the the time and the money I've sacrificed for the Lord's work? I mean, what's the advantage of, of being a Christian if those who aren't get what they want, but I don't? And not only do I not get what I want, I have troubles on top of that. In fact, it seems as if I'm being punished for trying to do the right thing. I've remained devoted to God for nothing. And at that point, I think what happened to Asaph is what happens to all of us when we get our eyes off God. He was totally consumed with himself. He was being totally self-centered. He had a what's-in-it-for-me mentality. And he had clearly forgotten the lesson of the book of Job, which is what? We don't worship and serve God because of what we get out of it, but because he's worthy of our praise and our service regardless of what he sovereignly ordains for our lives. Notice how he continues in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus. In other words, I haven't told anybody this until now. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Obviously, Asaph hesitated to tell anyone else what he was really feeling deep down inside. He he knew better than that. He he remained sensitive, even though he was struggling with these things, he remained sensitive to his responsibilities as as a spiritual leader of God's people. And before going public with these negative thoughts and emotions, he had to consider the consequences. How would the younger believers in Israel respond if one of the worship leaders turned their back on God? To abandon the faith would mean undermining everything that he ever taught and, and, and sung at the sanctuary. He didn't want his sinful struggle to upset the faith of, of others in the family of God. He didn't want his doubt to cause others to slip or to stumble, and so he kept all of his doubts and frustrations to himself. And with no one to talk to, about what was going on in his heart and his mind. I think it was here that Asaph reached the lowest point of his spiritual life. He was disillusioned. He was disoriented. He was wallowing in self-pity. He had completely lost perspective. He wasn't thinking clearly. He was on the verge of punting it all, throwing in the towel, falling away from God. He was in what I like to call a spiritual funk. You ever been in a spiritual funk? Or maybe a, a spiritual slump? Even the best batters in major leagues slump at times, don't they? And guess what? Even the best Christians, the strongest Christians, the, 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 those who have been the Christians for the longest time, they go through spiritual slumps or they get into spiritual funks at times. If you've not experienced one yet, If you're a younger person or maybe a new believer, get ready for that experience, that occasional spell of derangement when the powers of temptation press your mind out of shape. And get used to it because it may not just happen once in your spiritual life, it may happen more than once. You may ebb and flow in and out of these spells of derangement, but these, by God's mercy, do not last. They do not last. 
Verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until, until, circle that word, put a box around that word, put an asterisk next to that word, until, until I came into the sanctuary of God. That phrase is the hinge on which this entire psalm turns. This was the turning point in Asaph's struggle with the sin of envy and the wicked. When he re-entered God's presence, he slowly but surely regained his spiritual equilibrium. As soon as he got his eyes off the wicked and back on to the Lord, he snapped out of that spell of derangement. And I would encourage you that whenever you find yourself in a downward spiritual spiral, in a spiritual funk, you need to do what Asaph did. You need to spend some time with God. Whether it's privately, in the word, prayer, or corporately with the body of Christ. Because the bottom line here is that when Asaph quit wrestling with God and got back to worshiping God, he began to see things in their proper perspective again. His spiritual vision, which had been blurred by the envy of the wicked, came back into clear focus. He came back to his senses. He repented. And that was the point where his envious descent stopped And his glorious ascent started. And so let's look now at Asaph's glorious ascent. And notice, Asaph went on to list the things that he realized as he spent time in God's presence. These are the things that God brought to his mind that kept him from slipping. They provided him hope and lifted him up out of his spiritual depression. It enabled, they enabled him to recover from this spell of derangement and stop envying the wicked. First of all, he realized their destiny. He realized their destiny. Notice verse 17, I, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream. When one awakes, O oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When he reentered the sanctuary of God, the presence of the Lord, he realized he had greatly over-exaggerated the prosperity of the wicked. And despite all appearances, the life of the wicked is a precarious existence. It's as if they're walking on the edge of a, a slippery cliff and sooner or later they're going to they're gonna fall off to their death. When they least expect it, they'll be swept away by this wave of terrors, too horrible to contemplate. Their prosperity is short-lived and uncertain, and their destruction, however, is, is sudden and swift and sure. As Matthew Henry wrote, Asaph realized that the wicked were, quote, rather to be pitied than envied, for they were but ripening for ruin. They're but ripening for ruin. They're fleeting. They, they simply will not last. And he describes them, he likens them to a dream. Verse 20, like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Like a dream. They're like a dream that's forgotten the moment you wake up, right? It seems so real when you're having it until you wake up and you realize, oh, this is just, that was just a dream. And I want you to know, I have never been envious of another person's dream. And I guarantee you, you've never been envious of anyone else's dream either, right? Kelly will wake up, hey, I had a dream last night. You want to hear it? Sure, honey. You never know what's going on in her head at night, right? It's just kind of fun to kind of listen to what's happening up there. And so she'll tell me your dream, and then she jokes, what do you think it means? I'm like, okay, let's pray. 
But right, if somebody comes to work, hey, you wouldn't believe the dream I had last night. It was amazing. I lived in this mansion, and I had this car, and in fact, I had seven cars, and they were all these exotics, and, and I had this, and I had this, and I had all this stuff. It was amazing, and you're over there going, oh, that's not fair. I'm jealous. I wish I could have dreams like that. Do you ever say that little and think that? You don't even think that. Why? It's a stupid dream. It's not real. And that's what Asaph realized. This is, what am I doing? This is not real. It's only a dream. So he realized their destiny. He also, secondly, realized his stupidity. He realized his stupidity. Look at verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. So here Asaph is confessing the sinfulness of his thoughts. I mean, this is just plain stupid to me to, to become bitter and agitated over the seeming prosperity of the ungodly. I was acting like a dumb animal who lacks true spiritual sense. So he realized their destiny. He realized his stupidity. And most importantly, he realized God's adequacy. He realized God's adequacy. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. Asaph had the glorious realization that even though he had doubted God and drifted away from God and questioned God, God had never let him go. It was God's protecting hand and guiding counsel that had kept him from slipping or stumbling completely. And Asaph recognized that God had been with him all along and would always be with him. And the truth here for us is that the eternal, glorious presence of God in our lives as believers is a blessing to which nothing in this world can compare. Nothing. And that's what he says in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire a lot of things on earth. I desire a few things on earth. What did he say? I desire nothing on earth. Can you honestly say that? If you can, I want you to disciple me. <laughs> because, honestly, I'm not there yet. I'm working on that. I want to get to this point. Right? Where I can honestly, whom have I in heaven but you, God, and beside you, I desire nothing on this earth. There's some things on this earth I do desire. I do want. But I love this verse. It's, it's really one of the greatest expressions of passion for God in the entire Bible. It, it dawned on Asaph, why envy the wicked when what I have in God is way better than anything they'll ever have? The wicked have everything they need and, and they want. Yeah, true, granted, they do, except for the most important thing. They don't have a relationship with God. And in God... We as believers have everything that we need or could possibly want. He is our portion. To have God is to have everything. You don't need anything else. He is enough. You guys know I like Stephen Curtis Chapman. Kind of dating myself there. But one of my favorite songs that he wrote was called Magnificent Obsession. Just the title alone is worth the price of the CD, right? This is the lyric. It says this, You are everything I want. You are everything I need. You are all my heart desires. You are everything to me. I want you to be my one consuming passion. Everything my heart desires, Lord, I want it all to beat for you. Be my magnificent obsession. The point is this. When God becomes our one consuming passion, sin loses what Piper calls it suicidal appeal. 
Sin is suicidal. It's like, it's killing us, but we're going to do it anyway? Our obsession for the things of this world will be swallowed up by our magnificent obsession with God. The powerful allure of the lifestyles of the rich and famous diminishes when compared to the superior satisfaction that is found in God. And so when we come into his presence and we taste and see that the Lord is what? Good, we lose our taste for the pleasures this world has to offer us, the delicacies this world has. And we can honestly say, listen, let the wicked have their fun, their wealth, their health, their parties, their, their beer, their drugs, their sex, their freedom. You fill in the blank. I don't want it. I don't need it. Because God has become so gloriously all-satisfying to me. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Listen, my body may waste away and fail, but God is my strength. He is all I will ever need or want, both now and for all eternity. You can ransack heaven and earth, and you will never, ever find anything that can come close to offering the kind of joy and happiness and satisfaction that I have in my relationship with God. David was a lot like Asaph, a man who sinned greatly but had a tremendous passion for God, he expressed this all-consuming passion with words similar to those of Asaph in Psalm 84, verse 10. Psalm 84, verse 10, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand outside. I'll take one day standing at the door than a thousand out there partying with all the people of this world. One day, here, standing at the door. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God, then dwell in the tents of wickedness. He says, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and the Lord gives grace and glory. And this is the line I love. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Are you ever tempted to question the goodness of God? God's holding out on me. I'm getting ripped off here. I really want that. That would be good for me. Well, if God hasn't given it to you, trust him, it wouldn't be good for you. David was absolutely convinced that God wasn't ripping him off. He, he wasn't missing out on anything. The Apostle Paul expressed his passion for Christ with similar words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me to live is what? Christ. My life is Christ. That's all that matters. And in chapter 3, verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish is skubalon in the Greek, which means feces, poop. I consider everything else in this world poop compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Verse 27 for behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. In the final analysis, Asaph concluded, hey, listen, I would rather have what, what, what I have than what the wicked have any day because those who reject God and attempt to live independently from him and they seek their satisfaction and other things besides him will endure eternal separation from him in hell. But as for me, I want to be close, as close to God as possible. That's what he says, verse 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Being near to you is the greatest good in my life. And again, he's back to where he started from here. He's saying, I've entrusted myself to you for protection. I've recommitted myself to declare all your wonderful works to anyone who will listen to me. And so after reflecting on the, the joy of being back in close fellowship with God, Asaph expressed this renewed sense of contentment and commitment, and his feet were firmly back on the rock. 
of God's goodness, and he left the sanctuary ready to tell everybody what he had learned through this experience. It's kind of what David said in Psalm 51, and then I'll teach transgressors your ways. You forgive me for this mess I've made, God? I'm going to tell everybody about it. I'm going to help other people learn from my example. And that's exactly what he's saying. Asaph's saying the same thing. I want, I want to tell everybody else what I learned through this experience. And I think writing Psalm 73 was one practical way of doing that. To help me, to help you this morning. God used Asaph's spell of derangement to grow and mature him and take his spiritual life to a whole new level. In a group this size, I guarantee you that there was someone, if not more, who was experiencing one of those occasional spells of derangement and the powers of temptation have pressed your mind out of shape. You're in some kind of spiritual funk right now. In fact, it might be so bad that you didn't even want to be here this morning. And like Asaph, up until now, you, you haven't had anybody to talk to about it. You've kept your thoughts to yourself, mainly because you're not even sure how to describe what you're thinking and what you're feeling. Can I encourage you this morning? Be assured, by God's mercy, whatever it is that you're experiencing won't last. It won't last. And God is in the process of using whatever it is you're going through to draw you closer to Him. He's using this funk, this slump, however you want to describe it, to grow and mature you so that you will find ultimate satisfaction in him and be able to say with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but you, God, and on earth I desire nothing. There's nothing on this earth I desire. Much like Asaph, John Newton was a man gifted by God to write songs for his people to sing. You know John Newton. Best known for his classic hymn, what? Amazing Grace. But he also penned a, a more obscure but no less notable hymn called, I Ask the Lord That I May Grow. And it's a profound song about how God afflicts us in order to grow and mature us in our relationship with him. This is one of those songs when the lyrics comes up on the screen and you kind of read ahead of what you're singing, you're like, ah, I'm not sure I'm going to sing that this morning. I'm not sure I'm ready to say that to God or ask God to do that in my life. But this is how the song goes. I ask the Lord that I might grow. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. So far, so good. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I asked the Lord that he help me grow and he answered my prayer, but just in a way I totally didn't see coming. He said, I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. In other words, he would just deal with my sin and get it over with. <laughs> Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. He let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all my fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. Hey, I'm just answering your prayer. You prayed that I would help you grow, and that's what I'm doing. And this is, I think, the best line, the last line. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. And break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou might seek thy all in me. Isn't that beautiful? These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou might seek thy all in me. In other words, Newton was expressing how it seemed like God was going out of his way to make his life difficult, but he eventually realized that God was using 
his painful internal struggles with sin and temptation to deliver him from his selfishness and his pride and break him from trying to find happiness and joy in earthly things so that he would seek his satisfaction in God and God alone. And so the next time that all you have seems like it's not enough, remember that God is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the transparency, the relevancy of your word. Lord, I know we can all relate to this in some way, shape, or form, and we've all gone through difficult seasons of our lives, spiritually speaking, Lord, and gotten in a slump, a valley, a difficult place that distresses us, confuses us, disillusions us. But we're thankful that you mercifully bring us out of those times. Hopefully stronger, better, more committed, more in love with you, more content that in you we have everything we need. Lord, I pray for those who may be this morning smack dab in the middle of a spell of derangement where they're not thinking straight about you and your word and about the world and their situation, that you would grant them the grace to stop wrestling with you this morning and to start worshiping you. And that you would bring them back to a right perspective. And you would grow and mature them through this inward trial that they're experiencing. Lord, help us to learn the lesson of Psalm 73. Lord, we've had the privilege of going to school on a godly man's sanctification process, and I pray that we'd see how that relates to our sanctification process as well this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.